0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with John Wertheim, my colleague at Tennis Channel, senior writer at Sports Illustrated, and a 60 Minutes correspondent who's been on the show a couple of times before. And I want to talk with John about a lot of off court stuff. We've been talking about on the court matters for uh, the better part of really most of the year. Uh, let's let's be honest, that's what we usually do. I think now is a good time to just take a quick step back. Uh there has been news from Wimbledon being played without points, of course, being stemming from the the ban on Russian and Belarusian players. I want to get into that with John. Uh but the news this week, more recently, is the 30-year plan, ATP's one vision. ...being put into place. This is uh, Andrea Gaudenzi's master plan. When he was put in charge, this is what he promised to do. And this is now what he's delivering. It will uh, begin. The process will begin, phase one, starting in 2023. And I really wanted to, to talk th- this through uh, with John. Uh, we also get into Roland Garros' stuff because he, uh, he covered it for Tennis Channel for the entirety of the two weeks. So it's a good conversation, I think you'll enjoy it. Again, don't expect a lot of talk about forehands and backhands, but I I will address what was a week that was not uneventful. It's actually the best week after a major week on the calendar is the week after Roland Garros because there's so little time for players to prepare for Wimbledon, that the fields are, are actually quite good. And we got to start with uh, Tim von Reithoven, who, as a wild card, ranked just outside the top 200, who is Dutch, plays her got a wild card as, you know, the, the local uh, home country favorite, beats Matthew Webden. There's no slouch on grass. He beats Taylor Fritz, though, and starts to get serious. He beats Hugo Gaston. Then he beats Felix Aliassim the two-seed, in the semis. And Daniil Medvedev, the one-seed in the final. He had never won an ATP match. He'd won a Davis Cup match, which technically counts as tour level. He had never won an ATP match. Big serve, aggressive forehand, one-handed backhand. Again, not going to delve into it in too much depth, but... One of the most improbable runs to a title I have ever seen. And uh, my friends at DB4Tennis did confirm for me. It is the first time that a player ranked outside the top 200, picked up three top 15 wins and route to a title. It has never been done. So Tim Von Reichhoven, it's going to be fascinating to see. If uh, how he follows this up, because now he goes from out just outside the top 200 to just outside the top 100, his ranking is now in a position where he's going to qualify for events. It is a career changing run for a guy who's 25 years old. Uh, in in Stuttgart, Matteo Berrettini comes back from injury and picks up right where he left off. Wins the title there. He had a tremendous grass court season a year ago. Won Queens, made the Wimbledon final. Now he's winning Stuttgart right, you know, right on the heels of an injury layoff. That's pretty impressive Uh, with the way he serves, the way he hits his forehand from any contact point, able to attack. uh, He protects his backhand using the slice. I mean, he is still the real deal on grass. His opponent in the final, Andy Murray. It's no surprise to me. Just no, no surprise. What Murray needed most was a mental reset. And uh, I again, I was saying it throughout the entirety of 2022. He just didn't seem right to me in crunch time, under pressure. I just I didn't think he was coming up with his best tennis when he needed it. I thought he was in his head a little bit. So you know, his ability to just step away from the game for a little bit and to have this training block—not only step away, but to have a training block with Yvonne Lendl, who's a coach he's had so much success with, a coach who instills confidence in him—I just I. I'm not surprised that he comes back and looks the best he has all year, makes his first final since he did it in Sydney at the start of the year. Uh, it would have been his first title since Antwerp, I think, three years ago. And uh, the only bad news is he hurt his hip, just withdrew from Queens. That's really unfortunate. And hopefully it's just a just a tweak because that would be a tough blow. I mean, timing-wise, that's brutal. We're joined once again by John Wertheim, Tennis Channel, Sports Illustrated, 60 Minutes, someone whose work and, and career I have an incredible amount of respect for. Uh, I believe, John, it is your third time on Monday Match Analysis. I'm very appreciative. And, you know, the, uh, the viewers might not know how important you are to the channel, uh, because I've been doing this mailbag segment for over a year now, which has become uh, very rewarding for me, and, and the viewers and listeners have liked it as well. I don't know that I ever would have started doing that had I not been such a big fan of what you do in the written form uh, with your Sports Illustrated mailbags.
1: Very kind of you. Good to be here. You, you are way ahead of uh, where I ever was when I was your age. Um, and no, I mean, honestly, I mean, the, the mailbag is... We, you know, God, it's, it's been like embarrassing. I mean, it's, it's like almost 25 years now, but I feel like it's really from, from you know, and, and the best part of mailbag, I'm sure you know this, you have discretion, right? So if somebody says, I hate Djokovic, why do you root for that fool? You just hit delete. I mean, it's you, you choose and some of the questions are offbeat and some of them are substantive and some of them are questions that multiple people are asking. It's kind of a great way to, I find anyway, it's a great way a sort of selfishly to get a sense of what the casual fan is thinking. B, some of the questions are just kind of interesting, you know, brain exercises or or deep dives and you have discretion. So to me, it's, it sort of started as a lark, but I, I think it's actually kind of a really effective way to cover the sport.
0: Yeah, totally agree. And tennis fans are smart and they teach me things all the time as well. So you spent two weeks in Paris. I want to get to Roland Garros, but um, hopefully we get to that towards the end because I want to start with a couple of uh, issues uh, that that you would be my go-to on um, in terms of talking about issues in the sport that that have to do with politics and governing bodies and and the larger structures. Okay, so we have Wimbledon, we have the ATP. Uh, one vision plan. And I want to start with the latter. Something I I first heard about when you interviewed Andrea Gaudenzi on on your podcast, basically a two-phase plan that was just announced officially. It will be put into place in 2023. A couple parts to it, um, the schedule reform expanded Masters 1000s transparency and financials and a guaranteed 50-50 revenue split uh, for players and a kind of vague promise that they are going to work on conflicts of interest in the sport. So I want to break this down with you, John, in in three parts, starting with the fans. Should fans be happy about this news uh, of this now 30-year direction Directional plan that the ATP just launched.
1: Man, um, can we just start by saying this is going to be the least rated podcast, and uh, this is this is heavy in the weeds tennis jargon.
0: No, they love can, it. Can we they just do it. a uh, can, can we just do the
1: goat debate and um, whether Serena's <laughs> ever going to play again? Um, no, so I, I mean honestly, it's really important, and I think there's there's a lot going on here. Some of it is kind of this, you know, the business speak that makes your eyes glaze over, or if your journalist sort of makes you cynically roll your eyes but a lot of this really goes to the heart of tennis and where's it going and I mean I don't you know I could give you a whole monologue there's a lot going on here is it good for the fans I think it depends where you live it depends what your the nature of your fandom is. if you want to see more events with the best players and you want maximum Tsitsipas and Francis and Felix which is really I mean since all, all of this is kind of there, there are two things undergirding this one of them is what the hell's the sport going to do after the big three and the other part of this is the great irony to the ATP, which is the more they go after the majors, the more significant the majors become. How do they get their fair share out of the four big events, but also make it so the other 44 weeks are essential, right? I mean, the, the more, the more prime, I mean, God bless uh, the, the events in Hergenbosch. We all love that story. But, you know, I mean, the prize money there is second round prize money at a major. That's not good for the ATP. So some of this is about narrowing the gap between tour events and majors. Um, some of this is just sort of fr- from a media standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, presentation. Where is the sport going when these three guys with 60-some majors retire? Is it good for the fans? I, I think on balance. I mean, I think we're going to have a more streamlined calendar. We're going to have more mixed events, which I think is a huge plus. We are going to have longer big events. If you are a Washington, D.C. tennis fan or – One of these 250s that's getting squeezed, not great. If you are a player ranked 120, not great. But I think on balance, it it makes a lot of sense. And I think for sort of the -the run-of-the-mill fan or the -the run-of-the-mill player, meaning a guy ranked 10 to 70, I think it's probably overall net positive, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's perfect. There are local communities who might lose their tournaments, which is obviously going to be a bad thing. Uh, For them. But the general idea that Gaudenzi has put forth, which is we have a premium product and we should stretch it out so that it occupies more space on the calendar, uh, I I do think that makes sense. The player uh, revenue part of this is not something I saw coming. And uh, basically, the way it was laid out to me in the materials I read was that the players are pretty much guaranteed a, a 50 50 split. Uh, at least for these Masters 1000s tournaments, it looked like if there's excess revenue that the tournament is making, that has to go 50-50 and that there's going to be transparency there. So my second question was going to be, should the players be happy about this? Uh, from, from what I'm seeing, uh, that seems surprisingly good. I was shocked to see that. Or am I misunderstanding exactly no, what I, happened? To
1: you it? know, I mean, it's it's there are all sorts of factors here too. Um, there is the threat of a competing tour. It may not be live. It may not be the Saudi, you know, twenty thirty fund, but it might be Bill Ackman and you know his saddlebags. There is a threat of the PTPA, which has diminished, but you know, eighteen months ago was a thing that I know the ATP was very concerned about. Um, a lot of this is just about the accounting. I mean, the, the big complaint of the players was we don't have full transparency. We're supposed to be partners here. Or this is an organization of, of tournaments and you know labor and and management of tournaments and players. And yet we don't know what Yantiriak's Madrid balance sheets really look like. So if the players are happy with the level of transparency they're getting on these financials, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a positive that this revenue split is going to, uh, swing in, in favor of the players i mean we all know about accounting tricks and we all know you know we, we see that this isn't unique to tennis not unique to sports i mean ask ask people who are getting back end of a movie what happens to uh you know t- top guns profit and how it looks a lot different than what it's reported as um but you know in, in theory it's an acknowledgement that this is a 50 50 partnership that it's an acknowledgement that in the past the accounting at these 1000s events hasn't been to the player satisfaction which i think is, is true and i think is relevant and important. And yeah, I mean, again, if you are I'm picking, picking a name at random, if you're Hugo Gaston and you'll, you'll make a main draw at these things. And if you're the number 50th ranked guy, um, yeah, it's, it's a good day for you.
0: Yeah. 50, 50. If it is that like, that's, that's the NBA split. And then you could have a conversation right. about why aren't the tournaments generating more with the TV stuff. And that's a whole nother story. Um right. You know, if we, uh, John, you and I are both UFC fans, I think the split would look more like 90-10 if there was actual transparency there, which there's not. Uh, the phase... in, in, in
1: UFC, yeah, let's be clear. Yeah. Um, in, in UFC, t- 10% to the players, the, the, the athletes, the guys who are getting their face bashed in, 90 to management. Correct. So um, yeah, t- tennis is not, I mean, you know, I, I, I'll believe it when I see it that we're going to have 50-50 style revenue split like the nba does but yes tennis compared to other individual sports certainly ufc uh is the athletes make out better yeah
0: yeah uh this conflict of interest part means absolutely nothing to me does it mean anything to you i mean i i read it it's just words that's all we will see
1: i mean yeah there's more to it i mean there there are board members who represent management agencies who own tournaments but also represent players imagine if you were represented as a player by a management agency that has an employee on your board advocating to reduce your salary. That is one example uh, among many. Um, there are a lot of conflicts. And if you just laid this out, and this isn't media bitching. This isn't me and you. I mean, if you just yeah. laid this out to any corporate ethicist, they would say, what? You're trying to tell me that a board member who's voting on this issue is also, you know, has ties to the All England? I mean, it's just you sort of go through some of these conflicts and I think Fugenzie recognizes this is a great growth stunter and I think it's going to be case by case. I mean, it's hard to get too specific without sort of naming names and relationships and webs, but I think this gives him, if nothing else, I mean, you're right. it, It reads like word salad, but I think what it also does is it empowers him or somebody to say, Hey, wait a second. IMG either represent players or tournaments, but you can't have a board member, advocating for reduced prize money when the same entity represents talent um so i I think if nothing else it arms somebody whether it's gdenzi whether it's some independent board it arms them with the right to um sort of take on these conflicts which are huge the more you sort of look under the hood or whatever the cliche is in this sport the more you realize it's not just gross it's not just unethical but it really is to the sports detriment that it's been so permissive about conflict that in any other corporate environment wouldn't even be considered.
0: Yeah. So I guess it's a, it don't say I didn't warn you kind mm, of thing. Good. Yeah. Um, I, I got to follow up on that though. Where, is there an example that, that sticks out in your mind? And, you know, again, I don't want you to, there's so many of them. I don't want to put you in a position where you feel like you have to call out an individual or anything like that, but, but where what would be an example of a conflict of interest in tennis getting in the way of its growth and really hurting the basic function of, of the sport?
1: Well, I mean, you know, they're, they're sort of large and small issues. So IMG owns Miami. So all the wild cards go to IMG players. They use sure. that when they recruit players. So imagine if you had a situation like we have uh, heading into, you know, Andy Murray, who's, or you know, pick a name at random, you know, Francis gets on a hot street, but uh, isn't represented by IMG, and he's being denied entry into the second or third biggest US tournament because he's not represented by the management company. Um, yep. IMG, I, mean, I don't know, we'll pick on IMG, which also, you know, IMG allegedly negotiated or helped set up this this Netflix deal, this sort of tennis version of Drive to Survive. So, not surprisingly, you hear complaints that it's IMG clients that are figuring prominently. Um. And then I think they're just sort of bigger board decisions. I mean, again, the fact that, and, and you know, WTA isn't immune from this either, but that these management companies can represent players and stage tournaments and have people that are sort of advocating against the players they represent is just mind-boggling.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um... I'm I'm wondering if if they're going to be able to actually snuff these out. I'm a little bit pessimistic for some reason. I don't know why, uh, but I hope so. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, ignore phase two just so everybody knows who's who's watching. It's uh, phase two of the plan is to basically take the governing bodies and bring them together and make a more cohesive governing structure so that's way down the road that is gaudenzi's hope uh i'll ask you real quick though are you hopeful about phase two i know it's not close but but do you feel uh like it's something that that's realistic that it can be done
1: you know i think at some level it's going to depend on the success of phase one but yeah if people if if the WTA says, you know what? We are really well-served by these events. We don't feel like second-class citizens. We don't feel like our players have to get here at 5 in the morning for the practice court. I mean, it's just it's little things apart from revenue splits and TV windows. I mean, you can't believe how often players bitch about practice courts at these. I mean, this is a huge – practice courts is a huge – when you bring it to the players, Right. it's a huge impediment to joint events. I mean, it comes up again and again, um, which sounds – silly and and sort of short-sighted but I you know different people have different issues um I think you you look at the numbers that were thrown around we we can roll our eyes and sort of argue about the morality of it all but look at the numbers thrown around last weekend on this live golf tour right I mean look at um look at salaries in other sports for mark I mean look at NBA median salary is going to be eight figures next year um I think tennis is realizing look where this international sport. We have these assets. Why don't we have the kind of financials that other similarly situated sports do? And I think that um, I, you know, I, I, I like personally, I think again, he's a former player, but he also sort of has this, this NBA sense, but he's not a robot. I mean, I think that the right set of circumstances do I think all seven of these tennis entities are going to come together and, uh, grow the pie for everyone that that might be optimistic but i do think if this phase one proves successful and if there's some demonstrable wins that you can point to um i i'm sort of guardedly optimistic here i mean i think tennis has a number of external wake-up calls that look we're dropping the ball here guys we should be in a different place than we are i think there are these existential threats whether it's mobile and gaming or whether it's rival tours or whether it's you know, I mean, the, the Saudi golf tour didn't come out of nowhere. It's part of a broader spend to use soft power to transform the Saudi economy. It wouldn't be crazy if they said, you know what, let's park a billion dollars in tennis. I don't know. I mean, would could the ATP and the WTA withstand that? If if somebody was suddenly saying, I'm going to pay you 3x what you're making at Stuttgart. Um, so I, I, mean, I think some of this is... Uh, a vision that makes a lot of sense. And I think some yeah. of this is also these kind of existential external threats that, um, tend to incentivize people to make good decisions.
0: I'm glad Gaudenzi is, is throwing it out there and shooting for the mm-hmm. the highest goals possible, uh, because, and, and understanding, I guess, uh, it's nice to see, I would say, complacency out the window when it comes to this plan uh, it's good That's to good. see that i would say let's uh shift gears to wimbledon is that going to be is this going to be a higher rated segment you think the the wimbledon stuff john <laughs> there we
1: go uh, uh can we can we talk about roger and serena no I'm <laughs> okay. um, I, I mean honestly I'm, i mean all, all jokes aside i'm glad you brought that up because sort of tennis politics um you know, again, it's not the sexiest topic, but in a lot of ways, it's more important than whether Alcaraz is going to be a threat on grass. I mean, it's it's really it's not golf, right? It's it's not quite uh, the, the the PGA's dilemma right now, but it was a big week for tennis, and um, you know, whether EGA doesn't play a warm up is significant, but it we we should be talking about these these structural issues. So good good on you. Yes, Wimbledon will be a uh, more highly rated happier topic. What, uh, what can we talk about?
0: So let's talk about the points thing. Um, the ATP has positioned this as Russian and Belarusian players are not, uh, have been wronged basically. And in the name of fairness, we are stripping Wimbledon because it hasn't adhered to our rankings policy. Oh, by the way, it would be nice if the slam stopped acting unilaterally. That's kind of how I read the, the ATP and WTA's communications. I feel like it's more of the latter. I'm curious to know how you feel about the balance of, is are the tours really sticking up for Russian and Bolo-Russian players, or is it more a reminder of okay, you guys, the slams, you can't walk all over us. We actually do wield some power here. And you do need to follow the, the rules that, that we've set out for our ranking system and our tournaments.
1: Uh, that is a great question. Um, I feel like the tours felt they couldn't do nothing. They couldn't just eat it. I, I don't feel like either tour is particularly swayed morally, right? I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, you know, Russia's not a particularly sympathetic nation state these days. I mean, I don't, I don't think this is an issue that was particularly controversial. Right. Um, but I do think you're right. I mean, I think, I think the tourists felt they couldn't do nothing. I think you had this looming precedent, not just the what happens in the future when China does X and the US does Y, but I think this this larger question you raise of this was done completely unilaterally. And we know it's not realistic that we're going to respond with a boycott. I mean, that's kind of the usual leverage you'd bring to bear, right? When When an employer acts in a way you find disagreeable you say I'm not going to work well that's not going to happen for the reasons we talked about right when a second round loser at Wimbledon makes more money than winning a title that's a problem um, so I think some of this was a recognition that look these these majors we've got to keep them under control we can't no, our players are going to boycott that's not realistic but we can't do nothing um, and I think that uh, you know what, what you're left with is sort of this measure that I mean, who, who really, that doesn't really appease anyone. The players are not particularly happy from, from John Isner for sort of from people who Fuksovich And I mean, look, look what happens if Verrettini loses early, look what happens to his rankings That Denis Shapovalov. I mean, but also just, I, I don't think anyone's particularly well-served. Djokovic certainly isn't well-served, but at the same time, you can't do nothing when your colleagues are being, I mean, I I, I bristle at discriminated against because there there is, you know, they they didn't just throw a dart at a dartboard. Like, there is a proximate cause here, and it's Russia's, you know, grotesque, hostile, whatever, uh, you know, unjustified, indefensible war. Um, I I feel like the the tours couldn't do nothing. This was kind of a compromise. I'm not sure it makes anyone happy. My my suspicion is that it's going to be a talking point. And that's the way these things always break. This is going to be remembered as the slam when X happened. And after 24 hours, it's back to tennis. And there's a crazy match. And there's an upset. And Nick Kyrgios does something crazy. And Djokovic wins the trophy. And it's going to be a footnote that you had this boycott. But it it is a bit of an awkward way to start an event. I'll I'll say that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be a big talking point. And I do think it'll loom as a, as a factor, as a mental factor for, for the athletes, especially when it comes to like a Daniil Medvedev who is playing grass court season right now without a Wimbledon to lead into. And that's points aside, but you know, I also, I guess my criticism of it is wouldn't it have been effective to say, look, Wimbledon 2022, that doesn't count for points. We're taking that off the table. That is, that is kind of the, the punishment for not including Russian and Belarusian players, which is not in accordance with our rankings policy. But we'll freeze the 2021 20, points so that players aren't nosediving down the rankings by no fault of their own. I feel like that would have been an a, a easy middle ground to hit.
1: Um, I, you know, I wish I had in front of me, Godenzi actually sent out an email last week, basically explaining why they've rejected that policy. If you give me a minute, I, I could send it to you. I could read it to you. Um, it was considered. And I think, I mean, the, the, the bigger issue I think is that doesn't, doesn't the ATP kind of diminish itself. I mean, the rankings points are one of the sort of the great leverage. The two tours have. And so they've made a mess of their rankings. As a byproduct and unintended consequences of this, the player who comes from the banned nation is going to ascend to, number. he did, did ascend already, to number one. So if we're worried about glorifying Russia, well, you've just played a role in that. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of unhappy constituents who are now confused about the rankings. So, I mean, the I, again, I feel like they had to do something. I, I think your suggestion, I'm, I don't have it in front of me, I don't want to misstate it, what you're suggesting, which is basically just take 2022 off the table. But you don't lose 2021. Um, I, that was discussed and sort of considered and thoughtfully rejected. I don't, I don't want to misstate why, but okay. that, was, that was on the table and, and rejected for reasons that presumably were couched in logic. I don't know. Um, I, can, I can send it to you if it helps.
0: Yeah. I, I do think they also included that in an FAQ that I did read, Mm -hmm. but, but that was all I read that three weeks ago, so I couldn't state it right now either. Uh, I don't think it left me a hundred percent convinced or, or changing my, my opinion. Everybody's going to play Wimbledon, right? Are we, is that what we're feeling? You were just on the grounds of Roland Garros. I know you were talking to people. Is that your sense?
1: What, what I heard is, that, I mean, yes. Yeah, so of the eligible play, you know, Zverev's obviously not playing, and the Russians aren't playing. And I, yeah. I think Nadal. I mean, whatever. We we could timestamp this as of, as of Monday. I, I think he'll probably go. And you, you're halfway to a Grand Slam. You're the toast of tennis. You're. I I think he might give it a go, but I I think I think they're gonna play. But I what I'm hearing Isner even mentioned this. I don't know if you saw John Isner's tweet, but what I heard again and again is players are going to sort of do it, holding their nose. And they're not going to take they, – they canceled – multiple players canceled rentals in the village. They'll stay at the hotel. They'll go. They'll play a little grass. They'll win. They won't win. They'll get their prize money. They'll leave. They are not treating this as one of the real sort of building points of their season. And I, I don't I don't even know if they're – I mean, tanking is a strong word. But I think there's sort of a grudging attendance and not a, you know, I'm, I'm coming here and I'm going to give myself every possible opportunity I think this is just another tour stop. I'm not going to get there a week early and get on my grass shoes and get a home rental so I can get in a rhythm. I'll show up. I'll check into the hotel. I'll bring my brackets to the courts. I'll play. Maybe I'll win. Maybe I won't. If not, I'll take my check and go. And I think, um, you know, I mean, that, that might, I think sometimes, you know, maybe that will infect the early rounds, but again, by the time we get to the fourth round and there's, tennis history on the line and Djokovic is going for 21. I I don't know if people really care about that, do they?
0: I don't think so. And unfortunately we've had this question come up sometimes pretty unjustifiably, but we've had it come up a bunch of times, 2020 U S open with the Djokovic default, obviously the Djokovic deportation in, uh, in Australia earlier this year, you know, there has been a lot of, and mostly it comes from, from the radical parts of fan bases but right, right. you know there, there there has been that at a lot of these recent slams and um yeah all I right mean, but
1: lot that lot that off um we rob i right. mean and, and you know part, i really i don't know, i'm just tangent these, sure. these radical part of these radical fan bases that we all are uh somehow you know we're, we're all in various ways put into contact with i'm really torn i mean on the one hand it's of ruins it for everyone and it makes social media unpleasant, and some of it's just really vile and nasty and ill considered. On the other hand, I don't, you know, at least people care. You don't want indifference, yeah. you don't want apathy if you will. Really, but I think every time it a good scope for tennis, whenever we talk about the asterisk, unless it's something statistical, right? Unless it's, I always say, like, like Roger Maris got extra games to hit those home runs. I mean, that's something that's sort of mathematically relevant. Sure. But every time we talk about it's COVID, or, you know, Serena didn't play, or Monica I mean, every time in tennis that we talk, about, is there going to be an asterisk when it never, does anyone say Naomi Osaka's 2020 U.S. Open, it shouldn't really count because there weren't fans, or does anyone say, even Nadal's the, the 2022 Australian Open, hey, what a final in five sets over the guy who's now number one, that's what people remember, I think it's a complete red herring, it's a mixed metaphor, this asterisk is a red herring, and uh, it's sort of A hot take point, but it never sticks. It never works out that way. Nobody cares that you didn't have to play a top twenty player to win the major. Nobody cares if someone got hurt and Marion Bartoli won. Like it just, the winner is the winner. We move on, and I think it's going to be that way for this Wimbledon too.
0: One hundred percent. the history macro history it, it does not get as into the weeds as we all like to imagine that it does, especially when it comes to something as big as the slam race, where you have big, massive numbers flashing in everyone's face after every single slam. Uh, Let's get to, let's get to RG. Um, You spent the two weeks in Paris. You did a great job uh, with tennis channel at the desk, uh, interviewing players for two weeks. What did we, I want to start with Nadal what we learned about his foot after he won championship point, how does that change the way you view his title run? Or if it does at all.
1: Um, I don't, you know, it's, it's really hard. And I think as a sports, I mean, sort of assessing injuries always really difficult, right? I mean, it's one of the big no-nos of sport. You never doubt an athlete and never sort of speculate. And it's really hard. I think part of it is this. this is like a degenerative chronic condition, Right, so we know we saw Zverev, we saw Pull the ankle. We have comps. We know if somebody says I, you know, tore two ligaments, we have a sense of what that is. Like I, I don't, I have to look it up on my notes, like what the name of the syndrome is Dahl has. It's so Mueller
0: Weiss, um, I believe
1: Mueller Weiss syndrome. Very good. I, I, there's a there's a YouTube video that I've been encouraging people to watch just because it actually explains what it is. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's sort of a disintegration. Um, you know, you, you don't like to hear that a guy was. His foot was basically numbed. I don't know if any of us really can. I mean, we all sort of wrote. You know, we all have the transcript, and we all wrote what Nadal said. And he's he's an honorable guy. But I don't know. Like his foot was asleep. I don't know what what is that? Can you run across a tennis court for multiple hours with your foot asleep?
0: I can't even um, walk right.
1: Exactly. Um, so I don't. I mean, I think clearly there's an issue here. Clearly, he's been in pain for a long time. I mean, if people saw him. In DC, let, let alone this year. People saw him in D.C. last summer. It was clear this was a deeply, deeply compromised athlete. Um, and I think we just kind of have to take his word for it that he's managing this effectively. And sometimes, miraculously, he's going to be able to play through it and other times not. I mean, I can tell you that I went to his very first practice. Um, and then I went to a practice before he played his first match, even on a you know a backcourt on a Monday or whatever it was. I don't know, looked like Nadal to me, and I'm sort of thinking this is a pointless exercise unless we are in position to feel the sensations he's feeling. I don't know, looks like Nadal, but who, who are we? For all I know, he's in agony and he's playing through it, and for all I know, they've numbed this thing and he's back to being 100% Nadal. I think to the naked eye, most of us couldn't really see any you know visible signs which is great but also yep. this this is not this is a 36 year old man who doesn't need anyone's approval like he's not concocting stories; it would not be in his nature it would not be sort of something you'd expect from someone that clearly there's something here and he sort of said look i'll talk about it after the tournament and so we were all waiting the unfortunate thing is he has this amazing tournament he wins the 14th time 22 majors and the whole press conference turns into like gray's anatomy <laughs> um, because, I mean we sort of it, 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 Go go back and read the transcript And you'd think yeah. the guy was like retiring And now he's had this crowning moment of his career It should have been this absolute celebration Of this titan who just pulled two majors ahead And it's all about ligaments And injections and TUEs And um, it it was That that was sort of an unfortunate offshoot of this But I, I don't know I mean I think my, my sense is clearly There's an effective doctor and he can still win majors My sense also is he wakes up the, I mean, you know, cliche, but you know, he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and he doesn't play Wimbledon. So I think it's just, yeah, who knows? Uh, I, I sort of, you, you got to trust me, not him specifically. I think in general, we'd all yeah. do well to trust athletes when they talk about their bodies.
0: Couldn't agree more. Uh, I mean, I think it, it goes kind of, goes along with the lore of, of Nadal just figuring out ways and never giving up. Because mm-hmm. I, I do think it's accurate to say with uh some of the issues he's had over his career. I mean it's hard to step away when you're still winning every time you're on the court. Uh but but some probably would have have hung it up, hung up the racket by by now with all of the the issues that he's gone through but but he's still chugging along and hoping that this uh, latest foot thing works out. Um I agree today if we're time stamping it Monday June 13th, I do believe he's going to uh to play um Wimbledon. Iga uh First of all, impressions from, from watching courtside, from interviewing her a number of times, and we, we have a new dominant number one on the WTA tour. I think that much is very, very clear. Uh, I'm also curious to know what you feel the effects of that are on women's tennis.
1: Oh, man. I mean, the mystery to me is why she doesn't punch through more. She is, like, unplayably good right now. I mean, just there were, you know, where stretches she had to work her way through. She lost a set. There were a couple of patchy, patchy patches, as one would expect when you have to win 14 sets over you know, two weeks. But she came in as a player to beat and she lived up to it. And there were times, including the final, where she was just I mean, playing in a different, you know, just a different plane. I mean, it was just a different level of tennis. Um, and she's, for, for lack of a better word, she's awesome. She's funny and accessible and smart and she has interest beyond tennis And I mean she's coming off the court so it's not like doing this in an interview at a hotel or even in a press conference when you've got 90 minutes I mean she's literally walking off the court and she's talking about Ukraine and she's talking about what book she read and I knew you know you do these courtside interviews and it's always a fraught exercise I mean it's always I always say that the risk reward ratio is way out of whack like if everything goes right, it's unremarkable, and if everything goes wrong, it's on YouTube. And um, but even then, in that format, she'd sign every autograph in sight. She'd sign the camera usually with something witty. She'd have a smile on her face, and then she would go and have these monologues about the Three Musketeers, or you know what what she likes about Paris, or why she feels she needs to support Ukraine. Um, I, I I can't. I mean, to me, she's Coco's great. She's great. I think for something going to click and people are going to realize this is a absolutely charismatic, dynamic star who happens to be winning every set of tennis she practically plays. Um, it, it's a lot of pressure to come to a tournament and every of the talk is like you versus the field. And then you back it up. Crazy. Um, I thought uh, I thought she was great. And I thought, um, I, I can't quite nail it. I mean, you can say whatever you She's not from a major tennis nation, whatever it is. I mean, you can sort of come up with your own, uh, but I, I think she's terrific. And I think people are in for a real treat. If, if this is the future of women's tennis, like we're going to be okay here. Same same for Coco. I, I think she probably wins Wimbledon, right? I mean, she's, she's not, she'll recharge. She won't play any events. She's a junior champion. Her game, I think works awfully well on clay, but I can't really come up with too many reasons why it wouldn't work just as well on grass. And, uh, if this is the future of women's tennis, uh, we're, we're going to be okay here.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it might help her to win Wimbledon or the US Open in, in some ways just for the American market. I don't think mm-hmm. that's really true about um, other other markets that care just as much about Australia and, and Paris. Uh, I also think that, you know, there, there hasn't been a lot of time for her. Uh, she's only really been dominating uh you know she had the major in 2020 but then the her rise to number one it's only what three four months old so i think that's the optimistic view of of Svantec's stardom is that is that it might take just a little bit more time obviously you could say well it didn't take a long time for someone like Kanu to have mainstream explosive uh popularity right. so Uh, That's, that's the, that's the balance. Um, Let's uh, here's the kicker. Okay. You've been, you interviewed multiple players every single day, players, especially when they get right off the court is genuinely uh, an immense challenge uh, to get them out of their, out of their sports cliches. I want to ask you, did anybody say anything that shocked you? putting you on the spot that shocked me
1: um Maybe? i would say shocked i think what about were, you know some i tell you some of these so, so the question becomes um sort of you, you want you want the uh should we, should we talk about the dark arts of uh, these courtside interviews yes um no i mean you know so i do a 60 minutes interview right and you go mm-hmm. in it's not live you've got questions and questions you've had weeks of preparation the subject knows they're sitting down with you i mean there's a real it's you know sort of both are interviews but these couldn't be the completely opposite ends of the plane right um so player walks off the court the first question invariably has to you know, you can't start out with like tell me about your relationship with your mother right you have to great match out there gil what what were you sort of start with something summarize the action but what, what were you most proud of you, you try not to have the, the biggest cliche which you're always told not to say is how does it feel but essentially it's how does it feel um you just get them going and then you sort of based on any of a number of things, right? The tenor of the match, if someone did a 7-6 in the fifth set, you don't want to sit there and, but you know, a quick, quick and easy routine match, you might free it up. If you have a relationship with the player, you know, I think, like I'm pretty tight with Sloan Stevens. So I knew that she's not going to say what? Like I knew she'd play ball to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you think you have a really good question and the players don't get it. Sometimes Roger's great at this. I mean, Roger will take the worst question you could literally, you know, how how many uh, how many continents are there? And Roger will turn it into an eloquent answer about, you know, playing through pressure. Some players will bail you out. Um, I had a question to uh, Medvedev about whether he's a poker player, because he always says, oh, I suck on clay, and, you know, whatever my seating is, it should be lower, and I can't wait to get off of clay. And then for the first three matches, he was, like, didn't drop sets. I mean, he beat Ketsmanovic, I think it was, like, it was a, june i mean just two different players um so i asked him if he played poker and he had this long rant about his poker skills and he's trying to get into it and then we went from there to like pickle juice um i did not expect to be he said if, if you're if you drink pickle juice and you're not doing it to rehydrate you're a weirdo um, <laughs> i did not expect to be having that conversation but um you know i don't i mean these, these I, my experiences these players are overall they're really quite good and um I know Kazakina. I mean, they're all these. I mean, it's it's part of like going back to what we're talking about with the Godenzi's strategic plan. Mm -hmm. You have this global base of players. They were, I mean, Coco's great, 18 years old, and Rafa's great, twice her age, 36. And they're accessible, and they're not robots, and they're not jerks, and they represent different values. I mean, to me, if one thing happened with these courtside interviews, it really sort of reinforced tennis as athletes these are charismatic marketable global stars they're all very different they're men and women they're teenagers and they're guys in their late 30s it's international some people are somber some are humorous ego wants to talk about books sloan steven wants to talk about shopping for toothpaste i mean it's <laughs> there's a lot to work with here and overall yeah there's some jerks and yeah you know some players we all like more than others but overall from Djokovic and Nadal from from the stars to the people who are just happy to be in the second week. It's a really likable group of people overall. And it's just a pity that all the bullshit and the politics and the conflicts of interest is like sand in the gears. Because I I guess it's a long answer to a short and good question by you. But if these, I wasn't shocked by any singular responses. But what I was sort of really struck by was just overall, good people and diverse people. And tennis will be fine after Serena and Veteran Nadal and Djokovic. But anything that gets the bullshit out of the way and lets the Cocos and the Igas and the Sinners and the Francis's take center stage, um, we should all be in favor of that.
0: May Netflix shed light on all the great personalities in the go. sport among, among other entities. Uh, John, John, this was great. Enjoyed it so much as always. Appreciate you coming on.
1: You got it. Anytime. Thanks, Gil.